Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midiera Meets podcast, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music world. This month we're speaking to DJ Rap, who is a phenomenally talented producer, uh, DJ, singer, songwriter, who's travelled the globe with her musical career, as well as running two record labels. Now there's a GoFundMe page for this podcast, so if you want to support the podcast, check out the link in the description. But let's get on with the interview. So the first question I asked DJ Rap was about her musical beginnings. I think my earliest memories of music were probably five years old, six years old on the piano. Um, my mother taught me the initial piano setup, you know, basics, chopsticks, all of that stuff. And that was where it was. And then I developed a, a real interest in it. And after that, continue to be classically trained. So um, I still pl play piano all the time. I do piano concerts every month for my fans. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's my earliest memory of picking, not picking up an instrument, but getting on an instrument, learning how to play it. And then eventually, like, by the time, I think by the time I was age 10, I'd already done grade six with distinction. I was already on that that level. So I was, I was quite, I was quite into it, to be honest with you. And then I sort of discovered boys and I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I discovered wires and studios and I got into more of that aspect of, uh, of stuff. I, I, I thought for a long time I was going to be a concert pianist. So didn't work out that way. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's a really good foundation. Anyone who does do those those early classical things, I mean, yeah, the roots of music are all, are all there, and there's a lot of heritage uh, within that stuff. Were there any particular like composers or or, or song or? Well, the the less the way we were taught um, was the Suzuki method. So that method is is less about the theory and more about your instinct, really, in your ear. And I just gravitated towards anything. Uh, what what my piano teacher would say is, you just love those black keys. So Beethoven was a, a staple. You know, anything just dark and moody, and basically, you know, that just I just like the moody stuff. So yeah, um, I definitely, definitely, definitely was obsessed with with Beethoven for many, many years. And uh, trying to play anything that he's composed is 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 just it's still a wonderful uh, challenge. You know, so composers like that really yeah that's fantastic and how did and did that when did you when were you able to first translate that to like synthesizers and sort of yeah different sort of instruments with a keyboard well I think right away the moment I, I you know I think when you have that in you, you've got music in you just got it in you right so for me it was it was um, the moment I bought my first keyboard, which was, I think, an Ensonic keyboard. And I think it had like four seconds of sampling time. I can't quite, but it was my <laughs> And I remember that, you know, you would basically get four seconds or, or whatever, and, and you'd have a, um, oh, what, what are those called? Gosh, I can't remember now. Little recorders that had like four sort of slots. And, and you know, so I'd, I'd have a little beat and I'd have my Ensonic keyboard and but I'd always, always start with chords or a melody or an arpeggiating sort of, you know, melody that would start. And yeah, so for me, I, I still lead with melody. A lot of people, you know, when, they, when they're making drum and bass predominantly will start with, you know, eight bars of beats and bass and, and then build the tune backwards from there. But for me, it always starts with a melodic idea. 
and then mm. the rest comes. That's how it works for me. Hmm. So fun. Yeah. So I think it's a good a good foundation because you can go from that place to somewhere else and you can develop that idea perhaps. Yeah, I think it's harder actually though to do it that way because often if you've got something that's super melodic, it can be really hard to suddenly then go in a different direction and come with that really hard bass. Um, you know, often it's actually better and easier to start with the bass and the beats and then work your way backwards. But when, when you've got so many melodic ideas in your head, for me, that just that just doesn't work. And I just you just make it work. So it's fine. I mean, as long as everything's in F, <laughs> you just make those sub friendly keys and you're fine. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, I guess um, you can make you can make a really beautifully articulate melodic uh, thing and you you might get stunted thinking, well, how's a Reese, how's a Reese bass going to fit under this like twinkly bit? But for me, the melody gives me those bass lines. Like when you, when you start to play something in your head already, you know, that's why they say in, music is instinctual. It, it, you do one step and then another step just comes and another step it already, you already, your body and your mind and your soul sort of know what to do next. You're in that present state of just creation and playfulness. So for me, it, it's when I'm creating the melody, I can hear the bass in my head and the, the, the real trick is ma managing to get what's out of your head onto your door, uh, you know, into your door. That's, that's really the trick, isn't it? Like being able to not be owned by your door, but be the, the door is doing what you're telling it to do rather than you're just playing around until something sounds good. It's like, no, this is what's in my head. I need to be able to translate that correctly. So, yeah. Hmm. And do you, do you have ways of, do you have ways of translating that quickly? Because I know from experience that I've had a great tune in my head walking around in town and I've got back home and distracted myself trying to do something different. So do you have a, a creative flow where that you enable that? I think um, I try to be a bit disciplined in the sense that I don't do any sound design initially and I know it's a bit of a, a thing because with drum and bass it's sort of that is part of it you have to sort of produce the sound design as you're going along but when I'm initially writing I tell myself I'm just in the writing phase so if I'm just writing I'm not worried about mixing mastering I'm not worried about um, the sound design I'm not worried about is this the right snare I'm not trying to EQ anything I'm not trying to put compression on anything I'm not doing any of that I'm literally just writing and then what I do is I leave it looping and if I get sick of it that loop then um, then I know I'm not onto something good in fact I remember an old friend of mine Ronnie Size telling me maybe 30 years ago we were having a discussion about production and he was just saying to me like look you know get something looping for eight bars go brush your teeth do whatever you're doing and if you still like it and it's still looping and you're onto something good and I think that was sound advice like you have to be able to not be sick of it and also then I like to write and then I stop and that's the real trick for me is is I take sometimes writing the track if I was to if you said how long does it take you to write a track I'd tell you one to two days but actually it takes me a month because what happens is I'll do the writing and then I'll just stop and I'll walk away from it, you know, unless I'm absolutely on fire with it and I can't bear to leave it alone. Like I had a track the other day that happened with where I was just, it was just done in a day and I knew it was great. And I was like, okay, that's it. There, you know, I love this. That's it. But sometimes it's like, like the last track I had out roller coaster took four months before I was finally happy with it. And there was a lot of working on it for five hours, going away, coming back like two weeks later, continuing with that in between and working on different tracks. Right. But, th but then what happens to me is I get that initial, Oh, this is what's wrong with it. 
oh, this is what's right with it. Or, wow, this is actually really good. Or, oh my goodness, no, this is, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's not right. I've got to change that. So it becomes very obvious to me after some perspective and time away from the track, what needs to be fixed. Now, other people, they're just blessed with being able to see that right away. For me, it takes a little bit of perspective and distance. So initially I go in the studio and my process is to write, just pick any sub bass, pick any bass, don't worry about the sound design and just get the melody of it out. So write the melody of the song, you know, and then it's sort of chipping away. So imagine a giant piece of clay that has no shape, but in your mind, the shape is in the clay. And then you're just quietly chipping away until you get what you want. So for me, it's definitely a process of writing and not exhausting myself, not putting that pressure on myself because you could become musically impotent. And that's that's happened to me before as well, where, you know, I, I'm, I'm just suddenly getting anxious when I'm making music and then this, the, the, you're putting this pressure on yourself. It's mu It must be good, especially when you've had a big hit record. The last record you had was Monster. Then the pressure is really on. The first few hit records are easy to make. It's what happens after that that is actually really frustrating. And I went through a real period of time where, you know, I, I found that I could, I could just kind of write anything. And so I stepped away from drum and bass for 10 years and produced everything else that was different from it because I just couldn't wrap my head around what was going on. And then, you know, it, you come back and suddenly, boom, you're on a productive stride again. It's weird. There's a lot to compact. There's a lot to extract from what you just said then. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting things. Um, well, first of all, like the distance that you said about working on a piece and getting inspired and then giving it some space. I think that's really, really good advice for people. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people put themselves through the mill uh just working on it and working on it, working on it. And sometimes like with a relationship, you know, like too much contact with anybody and you're going to get maybe get under each other's skin a little bit. But I really, yeah, I really admire that, that, um, that approach that you, that you're talking about taking where you, you, you come away from it. Um, I think it's, that's really useful. I think when I was younger, I didn't take that advice. And what happened, you know, I was in the studio 24 seven all the time. And I was just basically very unhealthy. I was exhausted. I couldn't sleep because the music was looping in my head. Um, I had no balance. I wasn't in eating properly. You know, I just, it was all I cared about was being in the studio. Now, um, you know, I go in the studio maybe three times a month. That's it. And, you know, I have a life and I, and, but for those three times that I go in that studio, I'm incredibly productive and it just works. It, it, Cause one, I'm excited because I'm gagging to get in there. Two, <laughs> two, it's my reward for getting all my other work done. I'm like, okay, now I can, I can do something for me. But two, I'm not exhausted. Uh, I, I, I approach it from a place of playfulness and curiosity. Um, and there's no pressure. So when there's no pressure, you're in a playful cre creative state. It's, it's literally, oh, let's just have some fun. Let's just play with serum today and see what happens. Let's just do this. Let's try, because a lot of drum and bass is trial and error and twisting sounds and using plugins that were not intended to be used that way. Um, you know, and yeah. just experimenting. A lot of it for me is I will have, you know, sessions where I, I say to myself, right, you're not going to make anything today. Let's, let's just play with basses. You know, I'm just going to spend an evening, you and me serum, it's a date. <laughs> and I'm just going to see how much I can absolutely fuck you up tonight. <laughs> that is Excuse amazing. <laughs>
yeah, it's about breaking the models. And, and, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, when you think about synthesis and what's involved and how we get these frequencies and what we do, which is why I find drum and bass so interesting because it's all about breaking the modules and breaking those synths. I mean, the sampler was certainly not intended to be used for time stretching <laughs> and all the things yeah. that we, you know, did to it back in the day. And, you know, uh, things like, I mean, Goldie, you know, when he came out with, with those records and Terminator and records like that and use the sampler in such a unique way. And, and I remember using the Kurtzwald and doing just mad things with it and just getting these, I remember getting a Morley guitar pedal and sampling that and getting this mad metallic sound, which became a theme for the whole of learning curve when I produced that album, um, you know, with my co-producers, it was just about like, what can we use? Um, you know, you could take anything you could, you could basically, I, when I teach my students, how to make music in Ableton. One of the fun lessons that we have is today we're going to make a track with our mouths, no plugins, nothing, just our mouths and record. And, you know, we make a whole track out of all the sounds that could come out of your mouth and then shape them and create them and split the frequencies. So you've got, you know, basically make a bass sound and then split the frequencies. So you've got like the sub, the mid and the top and do all this stuff. And, and people were just shocked at how much you can do with so little plugins. And I'm an advocator of, making the best music you can with the least complicated path because what happens is I, I end up rescuing a lot of students who are they're exhausted mentally because they're overwhelmed by how difficult everything is and that's not the goal of music the goal of music is to give you joy and so if, if you're swamped by plugins and the technology it, it just it doesn't make sense and and you know i am an ableton person i use ableton but i i used logic before that notator before that and cubase before that um so you know to me it's it's i i i have a couple of plugins that are my go-to plugins when i say couple a bit more than a couple but obviously synths like serum um are my go-to's but really everything pretty much head to tail in ableton um you know yeah there are there are better eqs there are better you know obviously there are there are, there are better filters and there are better this but really you know it, the thing that you i try to remind my students it's not about how clever you are with your plugins it's about the idea you have and the vibe you have in the tune because there's a lot of people out there who are phenomenal phenomenal producers and engineers and sound designers, but they can't write a good tune. It's like, yeah, it's really clever technically, but who's going to give a shit about that tune in five years? It's plink plunk music. It doesn't mean anything. There's no emotion in it, you know? And then you've got yeah. producers who are just amazing writers and, you know, they're great at what they do. And then when they, they either work with someone else who can do the polish or that, you know, I'd much rather work with someone who has an amazing idea and isn't prolific in sound design. That's okay. We can always find someone to fix it <laughs> or we could yeah. do it ourselves. You know, it, that's okay. But the idea is the gem, not, 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 oh yeah, I'm using this plugin in this thing in this way. And this is how I'm doing it. And it took me, you know, hours of, I'm just like, really? Well, if you want to go into a complete musical wank, that's your call. I'd much rather yeah. actually make a tune that's really great and emotes to people. And the best tunes are the simplest ones in that way. They're not necessarily the simplest Definitely. to make, but they've just got a great idea and each sound has its own space to live in. And that's it, it's not filled with like stuff. You know, you listen to yeah. a lot of music, people like Blade Runner, who I absolutely love, one of my favorite producers, um, and LSB and, and producers like that, you know, that music sounds fairly simple, but a lot went into that to create those spaces so that each one of those sounds breathe. You know, and that and that's really it. A lot of that is the mixing, the mastering, the widening, the splitting of frequencies. Um, all of that stuff is what really makes it. So you could start off with a sound, 
And then like, you know, you might think it's not very good, but by the time you finish putting your processes on it and splitting frequencies and EQing it, which is really, it's just constant chipping away at that clay. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, I think people start out by looking for an amazing complicated sound. Yeah, like a big, big synth sound. Now you kind of have to work to get that sound. Um, but that's why I say for me, start with a writing session. So I'll just get an analog bass um, out of something like analog in, 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 you know, it doesn't matter, or just a sub bass. And I'll just play higher up on the keys and just write the bass notes out that are in my head for the melody that I've got there. So I'll start with like some strings, some chords, I generally like to start in F and then basically I'll just write the bass line out and then I'll just put just a rubbish sort of loop even, just, just to see how that feels. And I'll just let that cycle around and I'll just see how it feels. And I might leave that alone for an hour or two um, you know, put a treatment on my hair, <laughs> face back on, good, music's still going, <laughs> come back in an hour or two. And then what happens is I give it a break, don't listen to anything, you know, do something completely different, come back and it should hit me like a wet fish, like in the face, like a right slap, like immediately what's wrong, immediately if that melody's good, and then I'll take it to the next level. Yeah. Again, so much to unpack, but a, a lot of stuff I really, really, I really uh, agree with, uh, especially the sort of paradox of choice that people have nowadays in choosing VSTs and like market, marketed a new thing that's going to make this tune and make, make your music amazing. I am the Well, totally... that's, that's the problem, isn't it? What it is, people are looking for something to do the work for them. And that's okay, but the joy you get when you actually start creating your own sounds from up from the ground up and it really comes from you you're not just surfing presets and you're not just playing like other people sample the joy from that i think that's a great place to start you know companies yeah. like loop masters loop cloud all that it's all phenomenal and you know i i love i love that is i love that i use loop cloud all the time um and you know like i think it's a great starting block to to say look i just want to get a loop in and just get my ideas. That's great. But what will eventually happen is for you to really get your own unique sound that doesn't sound like anyone else. It's got to come from you and your own uniqueness, not someone else's sample. Yeah, like record the sound of your radiator or, and then pitch it down and make a bass from it. Um, I, yeah, I love using Foley samples and I love like just sampling, just hearing a sound somewhere at someone's house and going, can I record that next time I come here and just take it home and see what happens. Um, but yeah, I think you're right also about like, um, we, we sort of have this this idea that throwing a lot of stuff in the mix is like how to make it sound good. But if you look back at like acts like Yazoo in the 80s, or even drum and bass artists, like I'm not like super proficient at drum and bass, my, my knowledge of it's not great, but I do know Fotec. And like the space that that guy has in his track it's just phenomenal. It's like it's like a room to like look around in and and, and feel like you're within an environment. Um, you know, um, I I personally spent a lot of time throwing everything at the mix and wondering why it didn't work. And then suddenly these subtractive processes, like you were talking about earlier, like filtering things down, putting a bandpass filter, and and sitting the sitting the toms in this frequency range and and rolling off the bass down here yeah those um subtractive things are really really 
the way uh, one of the things I like to do as well that I think will help a lot of people is I always have templates set up in my door so one of the things I tell students who are new and are like, how do I nail the arrangement? Because you, you, you really cannot mess with the arrangement in dance music. There is a particular arrangement that works um, and it works for a reason, right? You know, because DJs are mixing in and out of tracks. I produce all kinds of music. I produce, you know, many different genres, but with, and so there's a bit more freedom with pop songs and a bit more freedom in the sense of, but drum and bass and, you know, dance music, house, techno, all of that stuff. So what I say to you, well, when you get your door, put your favorite track in that you know is a monster track and just set the locators under every anything that happens that is important in that track. So for example, 33 bars, what happens there? There's a drop. 49 bars, what happens there? There's a drop. Or, or you could put a locator, here's where the ride comes in. Here's where, literally put as many locators as you want and then delete the track and save that as a template. Now you have a perfect arrangement that's always going to work for you. Secondly, um, it's good to have a track that is similar to what you're making in your door so you can A, B the tracks and check yeah. how you know the levels are sounding and, and all of that. I always start my tracks at minus 6 dB, um, so I've got plenty of headroom when it comes to mixing and mastering afterwards. So I start my tracks at quite a low volume. Um, I don't mix blasting constantly. In fact, I think I hear better when things are quieter. And then when I turn them up, uh, frequency sort of stand out, but I, one, I want to save my ears and two, um, you just want to be careful, uh, with loud. Sometimes everything can just sound deaf and then you miss frequencies quiet. A hi-hat will really stand out if it's too loud, um, or a vocal, whatever. And the other thing I like to do when I finished a track is go through a process, um, called stemming where obviously I'm going to bounce each individual track. If I'm sending it off to be mastered, or if I'm sending my stems off to work with somebody as a collab. And what I tend to do is, take all the stems from the track individually import them into a new into a new page on my door so i'll open a new session and i'll drag in like uh, for example all the drums and i'll do it one by one and I, I then find sometimes i'm like i didn't need that that stem is sort of not necessary get rid of it so then i have a clean version of stems and often i feel like even because we're all guilty of putting too much in there um but what i do is basically shave it down once the track's done again and just make sure do i really need every sound that's in there is it got is it an you know has that actor actually got a place in this play you know or is it or is it just like what do i what's it actually doing you know so uh -huh. I, I really go through a process of like shaving down the tracks when i'm then bouncing down stems at the end as well Hmm. Uh, yeah, I think it's quite funny. I wrote down AB in my notes then just before you said about AB uh, recording. So I am making notes while we're talking, by the way, just uh, so I remember. Um, yeah, and I, th I think a, a lot of people do say that mixing at really low levels, uh, not only is it really good for your hearing, which is massively important, you know, it's like staring at the sun all day if you've got it really loud. But also, um, yeah, you can hear the fundamental elements. You can hear things that are too loud or... Um, overloading the mix so one of the headphones that i really recommend to people if they have the budget it is expensive it's about a grand but it will change your life when you're doing your own uh mixing mastering and those are the focal headphones and it's the clear professionals they are absolutely the best um headphone in the market for mixing and mastering they're just you you can hear what needs widening what what frequencies need splitting you know if you're doing side splits with eq uh you can hear all of that stuff in these headphones they're just phenomenal so you don't really need to be blasting things out loudly um 
you can just, you know, save your ears and listen to things quietly because the quieter you have the mix, the more things will stand out. Um, like, like I said, if hats are too loud or a vocal is too piercing. So yeah, quietly. And then loud when you want, really want to hear what it's like. I also use a sub pack. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love my sub pack. It's awesome. Um, you know, enables me to feel like I'm in a function one sound system, uh, on a plane or wherever I am. And it's fairly easy to carry, although I've been stopped at quite a few airports with people thinking it's a bomb on my back, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just convincing them. Like, honestly, it's just for music. Um, it's not a really funky cushion. Uh, but yeah, I, I find, you know, these days I pretty much make my music all in headphones and with the sub pack. So I don't, you know, I don't have to worry about neighbors. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's wonderful. But then when I want to blast it out, I blast it out. Um, the other one thing I want to mention about A being a track, which I just started messing around with, which I quite like when I'm comparing someone else's track to something that I'm trying to do, is to put a filter after their track and to just go through maybe a band pass for or low pass or high pass and just see like where the energy lies in this established commercial track. So just like low pass and then you, you can hear like the bass and the kick drum and you can hear the energy in that that part of the track. And then I do it in my track and I'm like, oh, wow, there's like the I need, really need to boost this section. Um, that That's a great um, that's, idea. I like that. That's really cool. Yeah, I use that. Um, obviously analyzers a lot and just, you know, we'll, we'll, they will help you visually. I mean, I'm more auditory. Um, but I learned that I had to use analyzers and um, it took me a long time before I started to do that. And that, that was a good way to sort of measure, um, you know, again, when you're a being, I'm talking about obviously like measure, you know, where the pe other peaks all sort of like basically even, you know, where, where's the lows happening, where's the highs, all this stuff and making sure that the frequencies are sort of balanced and listening. But I like that idea. It's a really good one. I might have to try that. I didn't imagine that you used Ableton for some reason. Um, it's uh, it's superb, isn't it? I love, I, I use Ableton myself. I use it right now to record here. <laughs> I am a proper Babelton. I love it, yes. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I've been using it years and years now. Um, and one of the things was, is that I was, when I lived in LA, I've been back in England for a year, but I was living previously in LA for 20 years. Um, and then in England before that again. Um, but I, you know, was offered a job teaching at Dubspot, which had some of the best um, Ableton teachers in the world, Euphavius Beck, John Margulies, who wrote the Ableton manual. Um, and, you know, people like that were teaching there at Dubspot and they trained me uh, to teach Ableton. So I was under their wing um, for at least uh, about a year and a half before I was able to teach my own classes and, and do that. And it was a you know, a terrific, terrific experience to be taught by, by them. And of course, I, I'm friendly with the whole Ableton posse. I love Ableton. They're great. You know, we all used to go out and hang out there as well. And, you know, I have a good relationship with the company Ableton and we've worked together in, in many capacities. And the thing about Ableton, when I started to learn to use it, and I've been using Logic before, um, is just, there's so much you can do uh, that you can't, 
at that time you can't do with other doors obviously having the two views and being able to play live and dj with it and do that but the thing that i think you know people love so much when i teach ableton to them is that within three hours they're remixing their own their favorite track and they can't believe how easy it is you know it's really unnecessary it's there are some doors that i feel like pro tools that are just unnecessarily difficult. Like when I hang out with anyone in Pro Tools, I'm just going, oh, for God's sake, I'm growing gray hair here. Like, <laughs> can we just move it along? Because it's like, and I know people are going to hate me for saying this because I've worked with people like Hans Zimmer and all these amazing composers. And I get why you have to use Pro Tools for, you know, 60 piece orchestra. And I understand, but it's like 20 moves for one, <laughs> you know, it's like 5,000 yeah. buttons just to do one function. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, I hear you on that completely. I, I, I felt very alienated using Pro Tools and um, it's not welcoming. It's know. not welcoming. It's really, that's weird, the, it's really hard to describe it. That is the, you, I think you did a great job there. I mean, I think that's the biggest problem. It's not welcoming and it's just confusing as fuck. And it's like, you know, um, whereas Ableton sort of makes sense and it's not confusing and it does everything and it's brilliant. Um, I still use Logic, however, for recording my vocals because I do like the editing process that Logic has uh, for editing vocals. I still think that Ableton could do that and that would be it for me. It would be the perfect door. Is that is that like a track um, sort of a take shifting thing that it does what is it that logic does logic basically does. like with logic and the version i have super old i should just say this so if people are listening to this going what is she talking about i've had the same version of logic for like probably 10 years and i've never needed to change it because i don't use it one i only use it for edit uh, for vocal editing and slicing plus mm. it's in a, a, a computer that has certain plugins that i've never updated that computer because it's got really old plugins that won't update and i don't want to lose them and <laughs> there's certain vocal processing that I do that is just mine alone and that's it. I don't want, I don't want, I can't, you can't get those plugins again. Um, so what it is, it's basically when you're doing the takes, it loops, right? So you've got one tape and then you see another tape underneath and it loops and it loops and it loops. But what I like is the tools, the scissor editing. So you can just basically phase out bits and then phase in other bits and just do that. And you can do that sort of in Ableton, but it's much quicker in Logic. So for me, it's just being able to take the marquee tool, fade out a piece of vocal I don't want like a little bit and I could just see it. And I'm so quick at putting vocal comps together now because of that. Whereas when I tried in Ableton, it just felt like it, it just, it was a much longer process. That was the only thing. So the only thing yeah. I don't do is the vocal, is my vocals. I do those in, in, in Logic and I do everything else in Ableton. Right. Yeah. Because sometimes with Ableton, you feel like you've, if you're overdubbing or if you're recording another take, it feels like it's just taken away what you already did and you have to sort of scroll back in time through it. Um, I totally understand that. Also, there's a slightly dirtier sound in Ableton when you're exporting stems. A lot of drum and bass heads prefer to use Logic or Bitly or something, something else, you know what I mean? Because it's like, that it's almost a little bit more digital. Now, this is where you get really nitpicky because the layman won't actually hear the difference. But sometimes I feel that that's just because people maybe have the wrong warp settings on on their on their settings on when they're exporting, um, and the bit depth is important and making sure that it's not uh, you know because because the way you export changes the sound. So it, it's quite interesting when I speak to people who are mixing and mastering. And they're like, oh, could you export this bit depth or that one and, and not do the one you're doing? And I'm like, why? And then they explain it to me. And I'm like, okay, all right. Well, I can't hear the difference. And then afterwards I hear the difference and I'm like, okay, well, 
you learn something every day. So mixing and mastering is, is a whole art in itself. And it's just one that I don't enjoy. I much rather, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I do not like to mix or master my own music. Um, I'd much rather work with somebody to do that and give them the cash and say, I just want to write the tune, finish it, and then have somebody else mix and master it. But sometimes you just have to, because especially if it's a drum and bass track, the mixing and mastering is kind of goes hand in hand with the sound design and the processing as you're making the tune. So sometimes I'll actually make a tune with some mastering plugins on at the same time, just to see how it sort of is sounding and shaping up without relying on them as a crutch, but like just mm. um, seeing how it will sound and then removing them and then just constantly, it's, it's a constant thing. So part of finding the joy and bliss in the studio was saying to myself, what am I good at? What do I suck at? And not beating my head against a wall. If my talent lies in the writing and the producing of the track and not the mixing and the master of it, so be it, you know. Um, you can't try to be everything. Not to say you shouldn't strive to up your game, but at the same time, like, for years and years, I just beat myself up because I wasn't great at mixing and mastering. And then I was like, well, I can't sing like Mariah Carey either, so should I beat myself up over that too? You know, there's only it's a few artists. It? There's only a few artists in the world who can do it all. Prince being, having been one of them, and you know, do you know what I'm saying? Not everyone can be yeah, Prince. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but then I guess, yeah, I think we've all got strengths in in lots of areas. We've all got weaknesses. But yeah, you're, you're, it's it's definitely true to recognize to recognize where they are and sort of reconcile those things with yourself to be happy and content with your your yeah your failings as well as your as your things that you can accomplish. I think that's really important. That's a nice, yeah, useful thing to do. The reason I said that is because there's someone that, um, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's somebody that I worked with for quite a long time who's an amazingly gifted, just so gifted, it's ridiculous. But he's constantly, every other month, whining about giving up on music, not wanting to make it anymore. It's a waste of my time. It's blah, 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 to the point where now I can't bear to even have those conversations with them anymore because I'm just like, look, stop focusing on what you don't have and focus on what you do have. So mm -hmm. what if you can only make neuro and you can't make jump up or you can't do this and you, but look what you can do. It's such a skill, but instead you're focusing on the have not rather than what I have. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, as producers and artists, we can get a little bit caught up in our own drama. And it's very important to just say, look, I might not be the best singer in the world, but I have something to say when I sing and it's got, my voice has got its own vibe. Celebrate that uniqueness. You don't have to be great. You just have to have something great to say. And that's the difference. You know, it, there are lots of singers who are famous and they don't have great voices, but what they're singing about is heartfelt. You know, their, their lyrics are heartfelt. What they're saying gets across, um, you know. Definitely. And I think that's what connects with people. You know, that is what... I was reading something earlier that was uh, written by a like a prolific manager. He's been a manager of lots of big DJs, and he was saying Who is that, that? Um, his name's Jake. I I I can't remember his surname off by heart, but he did help me out. He, I, I wonder if I knew him. That's all. <laughs> you may well do. I think he was he was the manager for Mario Picotto and like some big sort of electro-y sort of type acts. Um, but yeah, you know, he was saying that what you need, your audience want connection. They want that connection. They want an emotional connection with the music. And um, 
like you don't build your fan base they connect with you they connect with what you're doing so you can't just like oh i'm building a fan base now or like you know i'm building success right here no you you got to put out music that um touches people it always starts with a song. <laughs> people forget that. And I remember when I was signed to Sony back in the day, and, you know, it, I remember people telling me that. It's like, at the end of the day, when I'd be like, well, how does this record get so many radio plays? And how does this work? And how does this work? And blah, blah, blah. And I was just curious about everything. I was like a sponge. I wanted to know it. And, you know, my manager at the time was just like, it always starts with a great song, rap. You know, it always starts with a great song. He goes, you can, you can polish a turd as much as you think you can, but it's still going to stink of shit, you know? <laughs> Uh, excuse to be cr- sorry to be crude but it is you know you, you you it's just the same as someone gives you a crappy tune to mix and master you you can't you're still mixing and mastering a crappy tune that's got distortion or it's not bounced right or, or there's all kinds of things wrong with it or the arrangement's wrong you know so you've really got to get the basics and the fundamentals right which means in pop the story you're saying in a song the lyric the lyric and the hook that's it in drum and bass you know it's that, the way that bass drops and and but there still has to be some emotion there otherwise what are we listening to you know so you know I, yeah it's Definitely. important I was I was listening to I mean I've been listening to a lot of drum and bass in the last few days just to sort of get me into the vibe and I've been listening to your albums and um, I was I was listening to John B up all night earlier on today and that exact thing that you're saying sort of came to mind like the lyrics are so simple in that track but they're all so prominent and powerful like hold me tight don't ever let me go up all night I'll die for you like wow like there's not many lyrics but all of them they hit so hard you know yeah it's true he's he's another great producer phenomenal who manages to get everything encapsulated in one you know uh, people like metric as well who I love are phenomenal producers and get that melody in in such a way it's such a beautiful melodies but they're still it's still tough as nails you know it's just still still when it drops it's tough but they've kept and retained the beauty in the track I love that so in terms of like uh, drum and bass, um, wow, uh, it's such a huge subject matter. But um, you talked you talked in your previous interview that you did with Raw about the diversity that was in the scene back in the day and how and how everyone was very open with each other, black, white, you know, um, genders, everything. You know, there was you were just like one group. Um, how how has the diversity in drum and bass changed for you, like? It's, it's, for me, music has no color. It shouldn't be about, um, it never was about that. I think predominantly though, we all know, um, you know, the roots of drum and bass and reggae and where it comes from and then house music and all of this stuff. I, I don't really feel it's, uh, I think it seems, I don't know, this can be, you can get into a bit of like, I'm trying to think, do I, have I even thought of that with the music? It's probably the first time I've even thought of that. Um, I think you've got, it's more diverse now in the sense that it used to be very much roots and reggae orientated. And I think that has spread out a little bit more. I mean, definitely America got involved and, you know, you've got Diesel Boy and different DJs and people in the Canadians. And then you've got like, you know, uh, the Asian influence with, 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 um, trap and all of that stuff and then dub, dubstep sort of really took it off and 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 turned drum and bass into a much more sort of commercial different that went i mean in asia dubstep was absolutely huge so i think i think it's become more diverse i think drum and bass in england has probably it is still retaining 
the same amount of diversity. I, I honestly don't think about it, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I don't think about who's making this tune. What color are they? Are they black, white, Asian or whatever? I just, I just think is the tune good, which is, I think what it should be. Um, you know, but, uh, I, the music just moves so fast, doesn't it? In drum and bass. I mean, it just changes. So I think a lot of it for me is still the same players making the same music and then all these new and exciting young producers that have come through who are amazing and people like Dope Ammo and, you know, Exile and, and producers like that were just really, really good. Um, yeah, I, I, I know, I just, I don't know. I don't really think about that, to be honest with you. Do I think, I, I guess I've gone off rails with the question. Is it, do you, is the question, do I think it's diverse or do I think it's not diverse enough? Um, yeah, I don't know. Just like how has it maybe changed? And uh, yeah, I mean, I think more rich white kids are definitely making. It. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just got out of college and I've done a degree in sound design. Going to give it a go. It doesn't look very hard. Shop at Waitrose as well. Um, no, I don't know. I, I, I'm just playing. Uh, I just think that. Um, I think we have to respect the culture and where this music comes from. And I think we mustn't forget that because it's, it's entwined in reggae, it's entwined in deep, uh, you know, culture. And so for me, that music is, is where it comes from. I mean, that's why it's called drum and bass. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's where it comes from. So I think as long as we remember where it came from and, and, and we don't ever forget the roots of, of, of where our cultures come from, I think that's fine. Anyone can make it, can't they? <laughs> it's free. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember going to some amazing drum and bass nights uh, in my hometown. And um, yeah, it was it, exactly as you described in the previous interview of just everyone coming together. Like when the bass drops, it's just everyone's this one sort of unifying force going to somewhere together. Like you don't know where you're going, but everyone's going and it's going to be amazing. You know, it's going to be exciting. And yeah, feeling that like electric atmosphere in a club i mean um, at the end of the day this has touched everybody it doesn't matter if you're rich poor you did go to sound design school and i was only teasing <laughs> earlier but the point is it's like there, there are a lot of people are making music now um and you know it, it it's the job of music to bring people together and one of the things i always say to my you know female students is that look you know if you get obsessed by this and like i was you'll never ever be lonely you know it's the most amazing antidote to boredom loss heartbreak um you know it, it you will never be bored because you, you know, anytime you're bored just go to a studio man and just play with a plug-in or or, or you know uh, something and just see what happens something will happen so it, it is really beautiful from that point of view and, and and it is an obsession i mean from my point of view it's a it, it's an obsession more than it's normal, definitely, because um, I'm not interested in anything else. And if I was forced to not do music, as I said in Roy, I would rather die. So, yeah, you did say it saved your life. Yeah, well, no, it still does. Like, I don't want to do anything else. If, if, uh, you know, if, 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 um, if this COVID continues and it's like adapt and train and like do something different, I'll be like, yeah, I think I'll adapt and go to heaven or hell, whichever one will accept me because like, I just don't want to do anything else. This is all I've done my whole life. I love what you said that you think that DJ, being a DJ is having a little bit of telepathy, 
you know, like knowing what the crowd want. I think that's so true. Like it's it's quite hard to articulate that idea, but I think you put it really well that you sort of need to be telepathic a little bit. I, I think so. I wish you could have that in the studio as well. <laughs> you know, you're making a track going, oh, I know what they need. This is it. It's not quite that simple. But, you know, you you you, you know what record's in your box if you're playing records or digitally or whatever you're doing. But the point is, is that you know what to pull for and to draw um, depending on the atmosphere that's in the room. And I think part of that is just years and years of experience of being in rooms and knowing how to read the crowd. Um, so much so that, you know, I remember playing in crowds and being one of the first people to spot if there was ever a, tr a fight or something happening um, because you just get this sense you just get this sixth sense that's highly developed as a DJ where you could be in a room and you just know what the atmosphere needs and, you know, and, but you also can sense if something off is happening and right. often it'd be, you know, there was a time, I don't know if you're familiar, there was a time in the drum and bass scene where there were quite a few scraps going on. And um, there was a, a little bit of a, let's just say a bit of a violent face that happened. For yeah. Me. I remember gun, I remember gun events with guns and yeah. So that that was a long time ago. But the point it was is a long time ago. That, that that you know, you would get used to DJing and you your hair on the back of your head would start to sort of prickle and you'd be like, there's a fight somewhere. And you know, you'd look at the bouncers and point and be like, it'd be your job because you could see everything. One, you're standing high on a podium or whatever. And two, it's just a sense of all is not well, you know, what's going on. But on the other side of that, to flip the coin, um, you know, you also know what people need. And when the atmosphere is electric, it's, it's, it's very easy to say, I know what to pull out because just, just this will make people just lose their minds. <laughs> I think it's an incredible skill and it's definitely something that's probably honed over a long time. Or maybe it's innate. Maybe you just grew up with the ability to know uh, what music people want um, I think I think that for me that ability actually wasn't uh, I think that was from my hotel life when I think about it um, when I was speaking at Raw about has it I sort of said it hasn't helped but then I thought about that question after and I thought ever since I was a little girl I was expected to go into you know this room or that room uh, where my you know stepfather was and he'd be having a meeting and there was always high-powered people around and so you know you, you you know you're always walking into a room where people are watching you and my mother was always like you have to behave because you know we, we run this place this hotel and you can't be running around and being crazy and all that so I got very used to being at a very early age walking into a room in and just saying hello how are you my name's Sharissa and shaking hands with all the adults and I just got good at working the room from the age of like six upwards and then I was playing my first piano concerts at seven in the hotel lobbies with jazz players um, not lobbies in the hotel dining room rather um, with the jazz players who would play because there'd be you know double bass boom, 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 boom. and you know I'd be mm. playing the piano and doing that stuff and accompanying them so I just got used to rooms very very early and um, and then when I signed my record deal with Sony it was the same thing it's like okay we're going to do meet and greets and when I say we're going to do a few it's like six weeks of meets and you know you've, you've just got to get good at adapting and immediately reading what does this person in front of me need from me uh, I think they're really looking for some reassurance or they're looking to just say hi or they, they, you know, whatever. And you just get a sense of somebody. And also as an actor, um, there was a great thing that we did where an experiment with Howard Fine, where he would say, okay, you walk into the room, you're going to grab a chair and you're going to sit in the middle of the room and you'll be quiet for five minutes. And everyone is going to write down what they think you're about. 
Oh my god, that sounds like my worst nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) From the way you're dressed to the way you carry yourself to the way you sit. Uh, is your posture straight, you know? And, you know, everyone was after like five minutes. Well, she's either a rock and roll star, artist, because I had a belt that said sex on it and it was studded. I had a rock and roll Nirvana t-shirt on and I, I was sort of sitting back and, uh, you know, slouching a bit. And I was just like very, very like big smile on my face. And I just sat there looking at everyone. And, and they're like, she seems pretty open and very like personable and very, yeah, she's probably an artist and, you know, she likes Nirvana. So she's obviously into rock and, and it's, you don't know how much you're giving away just by breathing absolutely yeah 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 so you get good at reading people which is why i love fbi serial killer profiley kind of stuff because i'm, <laughs> like, I'm like i know did it i know I got it. <laughs> yeah i think yeah there's the huge amount of, of of stuff that's not being uh discussed or is is difficult to articulate about a certain person or like i run quite a lot i like running and and i can i can see someone jogging for like two or three seconds and i can tell so much about like how far they are into their jog how are they feeling like what are they working up towards? You know, you can tell there's so many minute details that we sort of just absorb. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, that's um, why I think um, clairvoyance would probably make great DJs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go see a clairvoyant. They're just really good at reading people. That's all it is. <laughs> Unless really there's funny... a genuinely gifted one. <laughs> I'm sure there are. Maybe there are some genuinely. No, I believe um, it. I believe there are. I do believe there, there are some okay. genuine gifted gifted people with different gifts than us you know the other senses that are more finely tuned I mean back in the day and this is going so off topic but back in the day I mean we were cavemen we had to rely on our sixth sense if we were going to get hunted or eaten alive so yeah I believe that people have have gifts you know that we we might not have definitely definitely more in tune more in tune um I don't know whether I'm not sure it's I don't know if this is appropriate so you can you, you can avoid this one if you want but we, you you spoke a little bit about um taking acid and you mentioned that you had a near death experience on it and I think that there are schools of thought that say when people have near death experiences they get more in tune to like reality is that something that you found yeah they stop fucking around with drugs <laughs> hopefully <laughs> a near death experience is a sort of wake up call isn't it it's like you know just pack it in it's time to grow up I was speaking to my friends about this last night and I was saying to them like you know it's been so long so many years being sober and I, when I say being sober I never got help for being it was never like that I just decided to stop and that was it uh, it was like yeah enough of this now and you know it was fellow musicians like BT who was who would say to me he goes you know if you're this good when you take drugs imagine how good you'd be if you were actually present he goes your instrument your body is your instrument. He goes, and when you're making music, your mind needs to be clear and, and you have to just be clear to, to create, genuinely create. And it's like, you know, he was really right about that. Although I made so many good tunes when I was, <laughs> so, you know, the day after, I, I mean, I'm sort of in two minds where the half of him's right and then half of me's right. But I think that ultimately I don't have a death wish I've made peace with my past and I just want to live a good, healthy life. And I want to be able to do what I'm doing. And, and re- look, it, it's really simple. The come downs became too much for me to handle. And that's what stopped me. Otherwise I'd still be doing it because I like doing all that stuff. It, it was, it, it worked for me. I loved it, but they mm. don't love me. The drugs don't like me. So it just was, it was a no brainer. I had to stop because I can't spend two weeks after 
recovering and feeling suicidal and not wanting to live my it's just no way to live so I decided to clean up my act you know go through what I had to go through to do that and um never never look back really Mm. and what's great is is what I've encouraged a lot of, of friends to do the same and watching them now take that journey is pretty awesome as well because now I can go around their house and hang out with them <laughs> without someone trying to shove a spoon of coke up my nose. But yeah, well, that's snorting a line off the the uh, the banister. Because for a while there, I'd have to go party around people's houses, and I'd be the sober one, and they'd be like, "Well, there's a line there if you want it." I'd be like, "No, I'm good." But it was interesting watching people, especially if you put one of your own yes. records on. Yeah, and you're All watching right. people reacting to your record when they're buzzed and you hear all those percussive little sounds that you put in the tunes are the tunes that they're sort of making these weird like little dance movements to, and you're like that's fascinating here i am watching them off their tits dancing to my tune whilst i'm sober never done that before that's pretty cool and um they just got used to me being sober and now a bunch of those friends are actually on the same path and and you know you've got to find that when you're ready when you're mm. ready, you know, when you're ready and good and ready. But I know for a fact that for me, it was because I was still reconciling stuff. I was, I was trying to not deal with stuff. I was, it, you know, it, when you are happy and balanced and you don't feel, and there's nothing, there's no need, you know, when you're happy, you've got your shit together, you know, your purpose in life, you know what you're doing, you know why you've been put on this planet, you know how to give back, you've resolved those issues. And let's hope you do resolve them by the time you get to my age. Otherwise, you know, it must be awful to be trapped by the same yeah. problems you had in your 20s, to be trapped in those in your 40s, 30s and 50s. You know, we have to take responsibility and accountability for ourselves and grow. You know, that's just the way forward and hopefully come out better versions of ourselves. That's the whole point, isn't it? So, yeah, whilst I look back fondly at those days and those years, I also say adio and thanks for the good memories. But at the same time, because I wouldn't change a thing, but at the same time, like, God, I could not live like that now. No, um yeah, well, first of all, like that's sage advice from Mr. BT, who, uh, yeah, I mean, that's clearly he's coming from a point of really caring about you and uh, looking out for you. Um, I think it's brilliant. And sometimes it's hard, I think, if you if you have a friend who is is into that and they do it on a regular basis, it's hard to be that friend that comes over and says, I, you know, I love you, but I don't feel like this is good for you and you need to maybe step away. It's really hard to come from that place because you know that you may well face, um, uh, what's the word, you know, it's going to cause friction. Well, um, I think the best way to handle that for me, what worked is, is if your friends, if you're setting an example in the sense of someone can turn and look and, 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 and say, well, why is she always okay? Why does she feel happy? Why is it every time I see rap, she's doing so many things? Why is she always on fire? Why is she? And eventually, you know, you want to, if you play tennis with good tennis players, as I've said in Raw, your game will be better. So the best way is to set by example, to say, well, I'm full of energy, full of beans. I'm productive. I'm smashing it. I'm happy. And yeah, I'm living my best life. Definitely. And I better to do that than turn around and say, look, I don't think this is good for you. You, What I've said to certain people is like, you know, when you're ready, I've been where you are. And eventually this will get old and this will pass 
and you won't want to do this anymore or not. But, you know, ultimately, if you're wondering why you're not getting ahead, you know, it could be this is what's the sticking point. And, and you know, you know I'll, when you surround yourself by people who are successful, who are doing well, and you watch what they do, you know, I, I was very, very fortunate in my life that I know a lot of wealthy people. I know a lot of people who give back. I know a lot of people who are producers. I know a lot of people who are on the other spectrum of that. And the one thing I can say about all the people who are kicking ass in their life is they're not sitting there in a room smoking a million blunts. They're, they're awake early. They're training. They're eating clean. They're, they're giving back. They, do, they practice philanthropy. They, they do meditation. They do, you know, and I wanted to surround myself with people who were like this from a very early age. And, you know, I learned that the ego is the biggest problem that we have to deal with, you know, and, and I learned when I was working with not only Hans Zimmer, um, but Mark Isham as well. Like when I was watching him, he invited me to Abbey Road Studios when he was doing, uh, I think, Rules of Engagement and the, the London Philharmonic Orchestra and all this stuff. And I was like, I walked in there and, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer was in the room. He was in the room. And Jerry Bruckheimer really knew his stuff, uh, you know, in the sense of like, he'd be like, I think we need to change that quarter note to a, to a, to a fifth and blah. And, and, you'll be, and you're sitting there and they all speak very quietly to each other. No one, and, and you know, Mark would go, like, yeah, I can, do, I can do that, absolutely. And uh, blah, 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 absolutely. And I'm just sitting there thinking of all the people and all the ego I've had and all the people in drum and bass and how we get all bent out of shape. And I was like, yeah, I want to be like these guys. That's something <laughs> to aspire to. I want to be like these guys. Talk, talk quietly, articulately. I haven't mastered the talking quietly yet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just get on with it. Just do the job. It's not, and there's no ego in that room. And if anyone deserves to have an ego, it's people like Jerry Bruckheimer and and Mark Isham because they're huge composers. You know, there's a there's a there's a composer called Henry Jackman. He's wonderful. About 40, 30 years ago, he booked me when he was in uni to play a jungle rave in his university. And then years later, we reconnected in LA. You know, he'd come around my house and he'd play piano and he'd be like, we'd be jamming on the piano together. And I'd be sitting there going, just no one would know the way you act. Like you're like one of the world's top, top, top movie producers in the world. And you're sitting here jamming on a piano with me and we're about to go eat sushi. And we're just having a laugh about drum and bass music. It's mad. You know, there's no need for all the. Uh... So what I guess I'm saying to round up is when you sort of have come to terms with yourself and you've made friends with your demons and they can sit equally on your shoulder with your angels I think you're in a good place. Do you know what I mean? There's no need for that ego. Healthy ego is good. Um, you know, it's good to know what you're worth because otherwise you become, you know, people can take advantage and they mistake niceness for a weakness and it's not, right? So I know my worth. I'm a, I'm a hard businesswoman when it comes to negotiating my fees and things like that or, man, you know, and I, I absolutely know my value. I value music. But at the same time, like, you know, we have to figure out how we can give back in this world because if we just take from it all the time, in every sense, in nature, in music, in money, and whatever, and it's all about just me, 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 it becomes really shallow. And you'll find that that mountain is a very lonely place when you sit on the top of it. Much more fun to fix your issues and use music as a therapy and, and come through the top and, and, and then you'll suddenly find yourself surrounded by like, like-minded people 
and it can be a really fun experience. Like the people that I surround myself with, that I work with, most of them, you know, honestly, they're just, they're just wonderful. And they're all like that. They're all calm and just really good at what they do and fun. And, 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 you know, it's like, I think when you're younger, you're sort of attracted to a different type of person, like these shiny, big, bright personalities who maybe are fake friends or, you know, really all about them, uh, you know, but they've just got this charisma. So as you get older, it's quite nice. I think that's one of the nice things about getting older is that you sort of look forward to this wisdom. And I'm like, oh, I know I'm not old, but if I only had the wits that I have now when I was in my 30s, I'd have bloody destroyed it. <laughs> it's like, oh, I was so naive then. I didn't know anything. And it's just, it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's a nice place to be. I'm in a nice space right now. I like it. say to your uh, your younger self when you were starting out that you know now um that would help 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 you through the the years of djing and production and vocals that's just simple i would have said save your money and invest it (laughs) that the money side of things um just you just think you're peter pan you think you can live forever you think all that money will just always roll in because ever since i was young i knew i was going to be um I knew I was going to be an artist and I knew I was going to do this ever since I could walk. I knew I was going to do this. And um, when I started to be successful, I had no doubt in my mind that that was the plan. uh, That's what I've been dreaming about, singing with a hairbrush my whole life. Like I knew I was going to do this. And when I started to to really get real success and, you know, signed, you know, huge deals with Sony and I was getting ridiculous money for show. I mean, I, I, I wasn't surprised. I was like, yeah, that's right. This is how it's supposed to be. This is the plan. Work your ass off, work really hard. But I never had a doubt. It just, and it knocked me for six when things went wrong. (laughs) It just, I was so confused. I was just like, what? Hold on a minute. This isn't, what? No. What do you mean? I'm not doing, what? (laughs) I could not understand. I could not, I could not wrap my head around it because I was so full of myself and what I thought I was so I'm Teflon you know and I I just was infallible and I'd never experienced failure and it was just like everything I touched turned to gold and then suddenly everything I touched turned to mold it was ridiculous (laughs) I was just like I lost all my money I lost all my houses I lost everything and all right look it wasn't all my fault you know what I mean I, I had people swindle me and all that I get that but I still like And I'm very grateful for the lesson because the reason I'm in a good space now is because I learned humility. I learned that I'm not infallible. I learned to appreciate the talent that I have. I didn't take it for granted again. I learned to appreciate when anyone booked me. I learned instead of expecting it and taking it all for granted, um, you know, I had to learn some hard lessons, man. And it was, it was humiliating. It was embarrassing. It was, you know, I was on my knees, man, on my knees. And, um, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there who will be like, yeah, she wasn't, she was a bit of a nightmare to work with, but I always brought my A game and I was a nightmare because they didn't work as hard as me. And so I expect people to work as hard as I do. And I don't like lazy people. What can I say? So, you know, if you, if you were a lazy agent, yes, I probably wasn't your funnest client. If you'd rather do cocaine and, and invite them and get the boys on gigs and go to strip clubs, 
then I'm going to give you shit about that. So yeah, you know, it wasn't easy for me. It wasn't easy. And I was a bit of a, let's put it this way. I wasn't a a meek lamb. So I've made my feelings clear and it didn't really help me. (laughs) But uh, you know, what can I say? Those people, yes, maybe I was a bit aggressive, but at the same time, I was the first female DJ out there doing this. And, and, and like, I had to fight for everything that I got because there was a huge amount of sexism and favoritism and, you know, it was difficult. So for me, I don't know. I don't know. It's just all about just calming down, getting to a good place, doing all this stuff. And I've gone totally off topic again, I know. but um, No, not at all. It's just difficult, isn't it? So just, I can't stick to simple answers, but the advice I would give <laughs> is, is maybe just calm down a little bit. Really think about what you're saying before you're going to say it. Ask yourself, is this really going to serve you? Is this going to get you the result you want? And save as much money as you can and put it into bricks and property. That'd be the advice I'd give myself. Everything else, it's fine. All the other mistakes, <laughs> I'm okay with. <laughs> That's brilliant. No, I think that was that was an incredible answer. Um, you know, uh, that you got the yin and yang of everything turning, touch, everything you touch turned from gold to mold. You know, that's almost a, a lesson in itself, isn't it? Yeah, because I think there are a lot of ways that people can get sort of caught up in the music industry, perhaps things that they're not sure of uh, going into, like signing contracts. Um, do you have any like particular failure, failures or like perceived failures at the time that ended up turning out to be sort of turning into a success later on? Uh, I can tell you that there's 75 compilation albums I've never been paid for. I can tell you that I've signed record deals, which mean I've never been paid for records that were huge. I can tell you that some of my biggest records I've never been paid for. So um, I don't know if there's any stories where I signed a bad contract and it ended up good. No, there isn't. Um, Or like, well, uh, I mean, those sorts of situations where that happened to you. Um, perhaps I didn't word the question correctly, but sort of like things that happened that were fail that were perceived failures at the time, but later down the line you sort of used that learning process in your career to enable that maybe not to happen. I don't know if this is the so sort of answer you're looking examples. for, but there's been many times where I wondered if I made a mistake leaving England to pursue other musical avenues because I'm music. Henry Jackman always says I'm musically schizophrenic and he goes, that's a good thing. You've got to stop thinking that's a bad thing. But I often wondered if it was a mistake, not, I didn't regret. I always felt good about my decisions, but there would be some times where I was like, oh, if I had just stuck here and done this, um, I would probably be this. But the experiences that I had making music with other producers and other genres and doing that, was so amazing and and traveling the world and working with all these different people. But I still sometimes wondered about it. And then I came back to England and COVID happened and everybody lost their DJ gigs. And I was just, for the first time in my life, I was like, you made the right choice 100% because you've got other avenues of income. You generate income in all these different worlds and you don't have to rely on gigs. Whereas I wa- I've watched friends of mine just crumble because all they have is their gigs. And um, if I ever wasn't sure about the decisions I'd made, um, that was when I was really 100% like that, that little bit of wonder. I wonder if I should have. No, that went out the window. But I think that, I think that 
I don't look at things like that. I, I never really look at anything I'm doing as a failure or a thing that went wrong. I honestly look at it as a, as a learning experience, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, there's loads of yeah. things, I mean, God, millions of things. Uh, but no, I don't know, because I don't really know how to answer that question in the sense that anything, all I know is there's a load of things that went wrong and there's a load of things that went right. I'm trying to think of anything that I was like, did that work out in the end when I thought it wouldn't? Oh, God. Well, for example, uh, no, I think I think really the me- the meaning behind it is like uh, learning processes from a failure. Like if you did sign a contract and you ended up getting zero royalties for it, uh, like later down the line, five years later, you were able to negotiate a contract having had that experience in the past and not have that happen again. Um, well, I'll tell you what, it didn't take me five years. <laughs> From the moment you're the moment you do something wrong, you learn from it, right? So, yes, I learned the hard way because back in the day when we were doing stuff, you know, I was I signed my contract. I believe, I I believe with Paul Oakenfold for Perfecto, my first record was on the front of his car bonnet. We signed that one. I mean, you just you just don't know, do you? You know, you just don't know. We don't didn't have the internet then. You didn't have all the things that were obvious and helpful to us. So, what I say to people. Um, you know, when I teach, I teach a business course with music, obviously, and I'm like, make sure you have a writing agreement. Just last night I did this. I'm working with an artist. I won't say his name. Uh, uh, he's a great artist and we've started a relationship working together. And I said, let's put all of this down on email because that's legally binding. And here's going to be the rate that I'm going to pay you to do blah, 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 blah. Here are the publishing splits. Here's what we're going to do. Everything was done on email. And I said, all you've got to do is respond to me saying read and agreed. And, and that's it. That's good enough. And I won't work with anyone who won't, who won't, you know, who, who, who refuses to sign a writer's agreement when we're doing a track together or you know, or, or doesn't want to do anything. Oh, it's me. You could trust me. And I'm like, I love you, but no, this is not the friend business. It's the music business. So when Mm. you're ready to work with me, let me know. So no, I'm, I'm incredibly strict on things like that. And just making sure that there is absolute 100% transparency from the get go, no misunderstandings. Here's how it works. If we work a track together, here's how it works. If I give you a track just to mix and master, here's how it works with publishing. Here's how it works with credits. Absolutely right away. Let's just get that out of the way, the elephant in the room, and then we can enjoy ourselves. We both feel safe, comfy and snug, and it's all good. And all that horrible part where we have to talk about money and stuff, which I don't mind at all, but like, you know, let's just do that negotiation now and get it over and done with. It's really simple. People are afraid to talk about money because they're afraid they'll offend someone. I don't have that problem. Mm-hmm. It's like, look, it's just business, you know, and because I've been surrounded by some of the best businessmen in the world, I watch how they do their stuff. You know, I played for Richard Branson twice on Necker, and, you know, when he... Wow, on his on his magical island. Yeah, it is <laughs> magical. There's unicorns. Now, um, but when, when he invites you there, you know, he invites the top heads of like, you know... ICM and Google and or blah 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 and you'll be sitting there whoever it is and you just break bread and ideas are born you know and I was invited there to entertain and play music and because I was doing some really big things then and you know you watch how people negotiate and there's no oh did I offend you I, I I'm sorry yeah no it should be 50 million <laughs> no it should be no they just talk like normal it's like well I would do that but it's not really worth my time how about we do this and blah blah and it's just a conversation it's a conversation about money. And I think we have to start valuing music and, 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 and money with that because, you know, 
if you equate your time and you say, all right, how long, how many hours does it take to make a track? 48, 56, a month, all right. And then you're selling that track for 199, all right. You know, if you think about what slave labor is, <laughs> start thinking in those terms of your time. Because what's the one thing that you and a millionaire have in common? We've both got limited time. Yeah. <laughs> None of you can fix that. Right. So I say to myself, what defines a, sex, a, a, a successful human? And that is how I spend my time. So I can tell you I am one of the richest people in the world. Do you know why? because I spend my day doing exactly what I want to do and living it in the way I want to do. I'm following my passion. I'm working. It doesn't mean I'm not working. Of course I'm working, working 15 hour days every day, but I'm doing what I want to do. So I own my time. It's my time and that's it, you know? And that's why when I'm spending time doing something, whether it's merchandise or whether it's, you know, I, I think before I pay someone, like, is it worth paying them? Because am I, how much time am I putting into this? That's the first thing I do, which is why I say no to a lot of projects because mm-hmm. people will be hitting me up and go, can you do this for a film? Uh, we haven't got a budget yet. And I'm like, I would love to help you, but I cannot. My paid work takes priority. Unless it's something that I'm really going to be passionate about. You know, it, it, you can't just, you can't say yes to everything. You just can't, you know, as much as I'd love to help everybody out and every charity and everything that's going on, you've just got got to do the best you can. Right. So value your time is another piece of advice I would give musicians value your time because those are your hard earned skills. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's superb advice because yeah, time is a finite thing and um, yeah, it's valuable. Well, Um, you know, there's a lot of people ripping artists off. Okay, like, well, why don't you do this for me? This remix, this, 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 and it's all free, 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 you know. And they're not—they're not giving them any publishing on anything that they're doing. They're—they're not, they're not accounting to them. They're not pr- promoting them really. And you know, it's like that—that that does not happen on my label. It does not happen with me. You know, I—I I want to work with people for a long time. That's why I've been in the industry a long time. You know, you want to build relationships and your reputation. At the end of the day is uh, as Scarface says, he's got his word in his balls. And that's pretty much it, isn't it? Like if, you, if people know you're a bit shady, there's only so long before everybody finds out. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, the people, house of cards fall down. People, yeah. people can say a lot about me, but they, they definitely will never say they've never been paid or treated fairly. They can't say that, you know, they might mm. say she can be a bit, she'd be heavy if you fuck around with her, but that's about it, <laughs> you know, uh, or she can be difficult if she do, if things aren't done a certain way, but that's because that's it. But treating someone fairly, treating artists fairly, all that stuff's important. Making sure your contracts are in place, understanding publishing, understanding sync, understanding everything, you know, just, just check out my course on music tech collective. Just, just take a look. I mean, all that stuff is there. It's free. It costs nothing. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, I did that and put that together because I didn't want people to go through what I went through as an artist. You know, there's no need in this day and age for you to get ripped off really. Although funnily enough, you'll probably get ripped off more now because people expect everything for nothing. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What was that link then you said? Music Tech Collective? So the link for the website is Music Tech Collective um, online. Think of it. And I just sent you a link. So if you could add that, that'd be great. And there's a, there's a okay. course in there that says how to get into the music industry with no experience. And there are free trials on there as well as the Ableton course, um, which was with Ableton 9 and then 10 as well. So basically that's, that just tells you everything from, uh, I'll sh- uh, oh, I can't share screens with you, can I? 
Um, but I'll give you an example of the sort of things that's in there. Yeah, sure. Uh, you've got how to get started as a DJ producer, how to approach labels, dealing with agents, managers, protect yourself, writers' agreements, copyright, getting paid, what are mechanical royalties, what is publishing, what is publishing part two, starting your own label, course notes, writers' agreements, copyright, course notes, what are mechanical royalties and all that stuff. So it just gets deeper and wow. deeper into the real fundamentals of the music business, which is you have to arm yourself with knowledge. You have to. Because then when someone offers you a record deal and says, oh, I'd love to put your record out. Now, look, when you're a beginner, I get it. You've got to sort of take whatever you can. But you could start your own label. There's no need to get ripped off, you know. And, and the things you can ask when you get signed is like, well, when do I get accounted to? How does that happen? How does that happen? Um, you know, uh, is there a writer's agreement? Do you take 50% for the label share? How much of the master do I get? When do I get my master's back? Things like that. Things that I never knew to ask, which have caused me lots of problems later in life with companies like Sony and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, you want to... You want to make sure that you know that stuff. I didn't know that stuff. I had the biggest managers in the world and no one was looking out for me. There's only one person who's going to look out for you. And that's you. Mm. I'm not saying other people won't care, but I'm saying no one's going to care as much as you. Exactly. Yeah. I think all, on all those fine details, you know, like going through the contract with a fine tooth comb. Um, yeah, you have to, you've got to be ready to because you're, you're essentially signing your life away, especially if it's something like a three-year deal or something like that. You have to be 100% sure this is right for you. And oh, I think yeah, make sure that word perpetuity isn't in anything. <laughs> yeah. Delete that out of the entire That's a bloody document. word, man. That word has got me into trouble. If I knew what that meant when I was... I mean, I never even saw my contract. It was all lawyers, and I still got screwed. <laughs> That's just the way it is. So know mm. your stuff. Um, yeah, so you you you're running. You do a so you do teaching online. You mentioned that earlier. You teach uh, Ableton. Uh, you also have a Patreon that you run as well. How does how does your Patreon work for you? Well, my Patreon is pretty much a twenty four seven job. <laughs> I started a business in June, and uh, it's just taken off and it's gone mad. So, like I said, it is fifteen hours a day at least. Um, the teaching I only take on. Um, every three months I'll take on like maybe five students and that's it because it's pretty much a three month course. And I'm got to be careful about who you're choosing and making sure it's somebody who is in it for the long haul really wants to learn. Um, uh, and so, you know, we, we go through a little bit of a process where I meet my students beforehand and then if I get a sense that they're really going to commit to this because I'm spending four hours a week with them. So for three months, you know, so it, it's, it's quite a heavy thing. I can't, and I only split that up into certain periods of the year. So I won't teach when um, festival season is on and things like that, obviously, because there's just very little time. So the teaching happens periodically through the year. Patreon came out of COVID. Um, you know, I decided to set up a business where I could, uh, 
basically stream for my Patreons, uh, do piano concerts, Zoom hangs with fans. It really just came from a place of, look, I really want to connect with people. I think community is the answer. The problem is what's the antidote to what's going on right now? All this social distancing, all this not being able to hug each other, all this separation, all of this, the antidote for that is community. So I wanted to build a community online and a place where people could form a tribe and 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 with the same love and like-mindedness of music, um, old school, new school, whatever. And the only rule is, is just nice people allowed. That's it. You know, so it, 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 that's it. It's just the same sort of people. And, and it's true. You don't have to build your fan base. They do find you. And, um, you know, what I realized with Patreon is I streamed initially the first 13 weeks of lockdown. Um, and I streamed relentlessly every week, a different genre and, you know, just showed people what I was capable of, really, and gave them just some really great mixes on YouTube. So if you go to DJ Rap Official, you'll see the YouTube mixes. Um, and, um, you know, after that, I was like, well, I want to continue doing this. Um, what's the, you know, what's the best, what's the best way to do this? But I also don't just want to be tied to just, hold on. Something just came through my headphones. I also don't want to just be tied to DJing. I'll give you the link there so you've got it. Um, oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, so I wanted to create something that wasn't just about DJing. I didn't want to be tied to that. I wanted to really explore um, artistry and creativity as much as possible. And I thought, okay, well, here's an opportunity for me to do whatever I want to do. Like if I want to do a piano concert, I can do that. If I want to speak to a thousand fans, I can do that. If I want to just hang out and do a quiz, I can do that. If I want to show people a sneak peek at my production, I can just invite them into my world and they can watch me open the door, so to speak, D-A-W. But like, you know, um, you know, I, I also thought, um, you know, I can do blogs and I have a blog called Open the Door and, and all these different things that I, that I wanted to do. And I realized very quickly that, you know, streaming was just one part of it. And actually the most important part is the creativity, being able to DJ whatever you want, being able to produce whatever you want, being able to connect to fans. And it's just spiraled now and really grown into this thing. And, you know, when I'm hanging out in the Facebook group, which is a private group for the patrons, I just, just, they make me laugh. I've got five or six private chats now on my phone with different parts of the group members. And it's every morning, it's just funny memes and funny stuff and we all you know this morning I woke up and I went morning ladies to the boys there's one group of six boys that I chat to who are a particular trouble trouble and I'm like morning ladies um how's the view this morning because it's like the view they just sit there and they just chat about stuff and we're going to turn that into a pod and base podcast you know where we talk about some certain things and blah 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 and, and you know I've got all these different groups of people and it's just it's wonderful it's wonderful it's I am addicted to it. I wake up in the morning and I'm on here straight away and I just, I just love it. Every Monday they get the goodies. So they get, depending on what tier you're on, they get their goodies, their tracks, their concerts, their mixes, their video mixes, all their stuff. And yeah, it's wonderful. I just love it. It's i uh, I'll give you the link for that as well. It's an absolute, yeah, sure. it's just an absolute joy. I mean, you know, start taking that attention off yourself and giving it back and, and speaking to people, when I first started this, honestly, I'll be honest with you, um, I thought this was going to be more a bit about, not me, <laughs> but more about streaming and, you know, more about, and it ended up being the complete opposite, it ended up being about me communicating with people who are maybe having a hard day, me communicating with people who are having a tough week, someone's gone for 
you know, maybe someone's going through cancer or someone's lost a parent or someone's doing that. And I spend my, I find myself spending time on the phone helping and in turn feeling helped because of it. And it's just become this wonderful thing where I did worry if I was going to go to hell because I wasn't sure about what I was giving back to the world, if that makes sense. But now I feel rest assured <laughs> that, <laughs> that I've found something that I can do that is not only making me happy, but is really making other people happy. And that makes me happy. Ultimately, that's that's what's making me glow, I think. Um, so, yeah, making a difference in their lives. I'm sure. Yeah. I, like, I, I, you know, I, I mentioned to a couple of people that I was going to be interviewing you. And it was really like the amount of people that said, oh, I've been watching her sets online. They've been amazing. You know, like uh, you've even you've done some break. You did a break set as well, didn't you? Um, did a different genre for 13 weeks. It was fun. You know, uh, breaks is like my absolute favorite, and you played "Scram" by Plump DJs, which is like my favorite track ever. That's actually my um, favorite mix out of all the mixes. The breaks one's my favorite. Me, me too. too. It yeah. was brilliant. It's it just got that energy. It's just like, and I, you could see I'm just having such a blast on it, and you know, I just love it. Um, yeah, they're all. It's all fun. I I, I wish that um, Warner Brothers would unblock my classic warehouse mix, but such is the. Uh, thing with major record labels and you know they are the devil at this point they're just not helping artists or artists and and and, and their music i mean there there is a better way forward than what they're doing by just blocking your content and look i've got a legal yeah. license i've got a legal license i stream legally on my website um it's not hard uh you know and and i just think i just I just think it's like it's like cutting your nose off to spite yourself like well we'll just block this whole mix because one of our records is like, well, why don't you just approach the person and say, pay a fee for using this track? Yeah, it's like, it's literally cutting off your nose to spite your face. Um, like, why just put a brick wall and stop it? If it's your product, like if it's their product, if, if it's their IP or whatever that's going out there, why are they stopping that getting heard? That's fucking counterproductive. So I can play this. That's the biggest part of the joke. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, like, right. it's like they don't even care. And it's just like, I can't even play my own music on Sony live on facebook or on youtube I, I can't play my own music can you play it backwards will they still notice but then they'd find all the hidden messages i put in there saying fuck <laughs> you assholes no <laughs> anyway <laughs> that's brilliant that's brilliant well yeah i um i think it's fantastic that you're embracing the the sort of modern take on it and um yeah you've clearly got a huge fan base that is really respects you and loves what you do and yeah, you're giving back to so many people um, with with your wonderful music. Just out of interest, do you know how many records you've got? You seem to have like an absolute ton of vinyl records. Do you know roughly how many you have? Probably around, I mean, I've got rid of a lot of them. I got rid of a lot of my duplicates. I would buy three of every record. Um, wow. So now I've probably got about 5,000 records. Cool. Are they categorised? Like what do you, they are, yeah. Oh yeah, that's the first thing I did when I came to England and I moved into this house. I spent, uh, I took, I, in fact, there's a post where I put my camera on time-lapse and I, ju I just left it running and I was cataloging every record, pulling it out of the sleeve. Okay, this is the techno shelf. This is the, you know, jungle shelves. These are the happy hardcore shelves. These are the, you know, um, and you just see me pulling every record out of the sleeve, playing it, putting it back, but it took, it took two months. 
That is brilliant. You know, I, I secretly love doing that stuff. I love well, doing you can that run organization. And do <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to catalogue them for Discogs. <laughs> but um, they're not catalogued to that point. They're just catalogued in genre, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. year as well. So I know where to go if I want stuff from 88 to 89 and up 91. So I know they're catalogued in that sense. Um, but I would love dearly to have each record photographed, catalogued and put up on disc. Oh, that'd be amazing. But yeah, who's going to do that, right? Um, but at the end of the day, um, it, the funny thing was, is that I catalogued everything and the very next week, lock, COVID happened. So I was just, there were no coincidences. I was just like, oh my gosh, could I ever be more really? in the right space at the right time? I'm ready to stream. I'm ready to play records. I'm ready to rock. You know, I'd literally just moved into this place Finally got the record studio set up and then that happened. I was like, oh, yes. Not yes to COVID, but yes, that for the first time, for once I've got something right. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, you've got tons right. No, no, I'll tell you what I mean. The amount of times I've had people say to me, if you had done Learning Curve 10 years later, because it was too ahead and now everybody accepts that you can do the synth uh, synthesis with genres and all this stuff. The amount of times someone has said, oh, if you'd made that record now, it would be huge. And, it, it, and so for the first time, I was like, the stars are aligned. I'm where I'm meant to be. Everything is in the right place at the right time. So, yeah, that's what I meant by that. Not like, you know, it was quite funny, really. It's nice when things happen, when, the, when serendipity happens and it's good. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think sometimes you you can have a decision and you're not quite, we can all have decisions and we're not quite sure whether it's right. And then sort of the universe just indicates that it you were right, you know, and that's really reaffirming, like reassuring. And you're like, yeah, I knew that was a good call. I don't know why I knew that was going to be a good call. So yeah, I'm, re I'm really pleased that that, that, um, that stuff happened, you know? Yeah. And in, in any other year, this, that wouldn't, there's no way that would have occurred, but it was, it was, that's what I'm happen, saying. It it's, it's, out very very weird and it, that would never never have happened any other time so this it are blessings and whilst it's been hard and it is hard and it's or there's so many things that just don't make sense and uh, i won't get into that but the point is it's like i try to find the silver lining and say yeah, this is what I, i'm gonna i'm gonna do with this my time because i'm never gonna get this time again you know i'm never gonna be this age again i'm never gonna be this day again i'm never gonna have this time again so what can i do with it that will help me when this is all over you know how can i water that plant now so that it bears some fruit. Really, that's the important thing, isn't it? Not not sitting there going, I'm bored. How can anybody be bored? I know. I, Learn yeah. a language, do something. Like, I just don't understand when I meet people and say, I'm so bored, aren't you bored? I'm like, uh, not really. In fact, I could do with a few more hours. I could do with a 36 hour day, actually. Yeah, I'd like to be bored. I would like that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Cool. Is there on just one final thing? Is there like a mantra? Is there any sort of mantra that you live by, or um, yeah, any sort of philosophy? There is. Victory is for those who believe in it and believe in it long enough. That is my mantra. That and Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> this is Sparta. Yeah. No, I definitely think that. Uh, that's it. You know. Mm. That's it. I just. Do or die trying. I don't know. You know, that's the, it's all the same thing. They're all the same. Better to be a tiger than a sheep. All that stuff. That's, that's, that's the swords that I live by. And they'll probably cut my head off at some point. But 
better to be a tiger for a year better to be a tiger for a year than a lamb for seven that's what i say so yeah what a way to go you know but uh yeah good last question thank you well yeah thank you so much for speaking to me it's been really really good it's been a lot of fun (laughs) we've we've been on the we've been doing this for an hour and a half yeah thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) i know i can talk a lot (laughs) you can but it's wonderful to hear you um thank you so much yeah keep doing what you do and um i'll put all the links and everything um so everyone can connect connect with you online i really appreciate it i really enjoyed it thank you so much well what a good chat we had there the other night uh as you probably heard that was done over the internet the first one done over the internet um but yeah really amazing to speak to her she had some uh, really great insights about production and um yeah there was other podcasts that discussed all of the sort of scandalous 90s behavior so um if you want to know more about that i'm sure you can go and check them out Uh, Please do check out the GoFundMe campaign and support it if you want to. Okay, next month we have an absolutely huge uh, guest. um, And yeah, it's going to be a really, really interesting chat with him. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Midera and I'll see you again soon.